This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm so excited that Ibram Kendi is here to talk about his newest book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. You know him as the best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist and Stamped from the Beginning, among other books. Um, he's also the co-author with Jason Reynolds of a young adult version of Stamped which was one of Barnes & Noble's Books of the Year for 2020. So we're very excited to see you. But I wanted to set a baseline before we got into the new book and just really take a moment because I think there are some folks who still don't quite grasp that anti-racist and not being racist are not actually the same thing. No, they're not. And, and I'm so glad we're, we're able to have this, this conversation. I, what I've tried to show with my work is that the the opposite of being racist is being anti-racist. And, and so if someone, a racist idea connotes racial hierarchy, that certain racial groups are better or worse than others, then an anti-racist idea is the opposite, connotes ideas of racial equality, of a policy that is racist is leading to inequity and injustice between groups. Then what's the opposite of that? A policy that's leading to equity and justice between groups. The, Unfortunate truth, though, is when someone is supporting a racist policy or expressing a racist idea and someone else points it out, the typical response is, I'm not racist. And so that's where that construct of not racist sort of comes into play. While to be anti-racist actually is to admit the times in which we're being racist so we can uh, be better and grow um, and, 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 and pursue a more anti-racist form of behavior. So I'm going to ask you a question that you ask of readers early on in How to Raise an Anti-Racist. We imagine our children can't be racist. Why teach them about a problem they can't possibly have? And that's precisely, I think, one of the underlying assumptions that, that parents have. We, we think that our kids are too young to sort of understand these complicated or complex ideas what I've realized is actually ideas like dark skin is ugly is a very simple idea that even a two-year-old can understand. The, the, the idea that certain people have more because they are more is an actually very simple idea that, that kids can be taught directly and indirectly. And so that's why it's so important for us to be teaching children to not attach skin color to quality, to not think people have more because they are more, but, but the problem is bad news. And so much of this book comes out of your own experience as a parent. I remember actually when you brought your baby daughter to the National Book Awards, it was possibly the first time anyone had seen a baby at the National Book Awards, but it was very exciting. But here's the thing, you are talking about newborns in fact, up to the age of sort of teenage, like late teens, right? So we're covering a wide range of age here. And you're basing it a lot on your own experience too. You're talking about your own daughter's experience. You're talking about the challenges you faced wanting to raise your daughter in an anti-racist way. So when did you actually start thinking about this book? Was it while you were writing How to Be Anti-Racist? I think it, I probably started thinking about the need for this type of knowledge or guidance when I became a father. 
you know, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And particularly by the time our daughter became one, and especially two years old, I, I started mm-hmm. thinking about, okay, how do I apply this to my daughter? How do I start having these conversations, you know, with my daughter? And I had no idea, or mm-hmm. at least I didn't know what the research was saying. Right. And so I, in a way, went on that search. And simultaneously in the summer of 2020, when many people were thinking really for the first time about being anti-racist themselves, they also started thinking about, okay, how do I talk to my children, you know, about this? How do I talk to my students? And many of those people asked me, and I was like, I'm not sure. (laughs) So let me figure it out and, you know, and write a book based on, on the research for it. One of the things that really surprised me when you were talking about your own story Eugenics comes up early on in the book, and I think it's worth addressing here because it was surprising for you as well, and it's another question that you asked yourself in the writing of this book and also the raising of your child, basically saying, I don't know how I'm going to circumvent these ideas of eugenics that I was raised with. I mean, all of us of a certain generation have been raised with certain ideas, the idea that talent is inherent or intelligence is a trait that passes from parent to child, when in fact, there isn't actually any real science that proves that. Indeed. And and that was something that I know my partner and I have, have wrestled with, you know, as, 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 as caregivers. And I suspect it's something else. It's something that many caregivers are wrestling with when their child does something at six months old or one years old, that's like amazing or that's similar to something that their parents have done. In my case, it was our daughter cooed, you know, very early on, uh, not long after she was actually her second day uh, being born at 29 and a half weeks. And typically babies don't coo for several weeks after being born. And so we were like, oh my gosh, does this mean she, she has this sort of expressive gene? You know, we're both communicators. And of course, we had to catch ourselves. And, and, and I think that it's important for, for parents and, and caregivers to catch themselves because once we go down the line that certain individuals uh, are, have genetic uh, a predisposition to a particular intelligence or communication, it's hard for us to not then say certain races or groups have a genetic predisposition to a particular positive or negative behavior. And this is a huge part of the problem because a lot of what happens in our conversations about race and racism right now, it seems like there's so much fear, there's so much disinformation, frankly. There's a lack of empathy, and that is part of what racism tries to do, though. It tries to teach us that we should not have empathy for people who are not us. Exactly, and and I, I was very deliberate in, in having a chapter in how to raise an anti-racist on empathy, but not just the teaching of empathy and, and the relationship between raising an empathetic child and, and, and raising a child who is going to be considerate and compassionate of others, even people who don't look like them, but also specifically raising a child to have anti-racist empathy. And so too often, kids are raised to have empathy for people who look like them or worship like them or act like them. And we're, we're, we're also taught to have empathy for people who deserve it. Um, and, and I wanted 
to convey the importance of raising our kids to have empathy for people who don't look like them or don't live like near them. And for us to not make our empathy almost like a tip in which it's transactional, or you just you just show that you're worthy of my concern, so therefore I'm going to deliver. Can we talk about your brother for a second? He plays a very big role in the story. You two had very different school experiences and your parents, I really like your parents. I hope I get to meet them someday. They sound phenomenal. But can we talk about your brother and his experience in school? Because I think this is a really important point for other folks to hear. My brother, when he was about two years old or so, was 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 diagnosed as, as having a learning disability and speech you know, impediment. And, and so he went into... Uh, specialized schooling for for him. And initially it was hard for my parents in New York City to find schooling for him. And my the suspicion was that particularly for speech uh, therapy programs and uh, programs related to learning disability, white children were overrepresented in those programs uh, relative to their numbers in the state. So we don't know whether it was because of his race why he wasn't able to get into a program. He finally was able to get into a program and it started doing really well. But when he got to fourth grade, uh, the teacher and him did not have the best of the best of times. And I think he responded to what appeared to be the teacher's sort of racist discrimination towards him by essentially closing up and not speaking, which then only inflamed it, which then ultimately led to the teacher having a role in his diagnosis being changed to the more stigmatizing intellectual disability. And I just wanted to sort of use my, my brother's story as, as, a, as a window into how ableism and racism intersect to specifically harm all children. And, and certainly it was this way for, for my my black uh, brother, but even I wrote about how, for instance, uh, white, I should say Asian American children, teachers have the highest expectation for them and they simultaneously are the least likely to be referred uh, for, uh, for diagnosis related to disability. And, and what I speculated is that people are not recognizing them as normal kids who have challenges just like you know the rest of us. And, and so in a way, Certain kids are not receiving special support because of their race, and other kids are being ostracized because of their race. And your parents were really involved both in your schooling and your brother's, and yours for a slightly different reason. But what I appreciate about how they handled it was they were really involved, and they were really in front of the teachers and the administration. They even moved you multiple times. I mean, how many schools did you go to before high school? I think total, including high school, I went okay. to eight schools. Okay. And that was because your parents knew that the system was not working for you as a student. And they were really ahead of their time. I mean, this was when? This was the 1980s and right. 1990s. Yeah. Right. I mean, that feels like a really important point to make, that your parents were really involved, that they were really in a place where they could support you and say, hey, wait a minute, the system is not working. And let's figure out how to make that happen. And I feel like we're missing those conversations that people have internalized and personalized things that are actually 
not necessarily about them as people. And I think folks are still having a really hard time seeing the difference. Well, and, and I, I think it's, I, I, I think it's also difficult for many parents to, to be as involved mm -hmm. and aggressive as my parents were. I mean, I think certainly I, I wrote a little bit about how my father's mother worked a, a wage job in a factory. And it created conditions in which if she was to leave work to respond to something that was happening to him at his school, let's say he was being mistreated by a teacher, that could cause her to not make rent or to not be able to, to put food you know, on the table. Or how uh, I wrote about how my mother had to uh, lobby to get time off after I was born <laughs> uh, because her female uh, supervisor refused to, to give her uh, six weeks of medical leave without pay. Um, and so obviously we're in a different time with the, with the, with the Family and Medical Leave Act of, of 1993, but it just goes to show how difficult it is for parents to protect their children, even from the harms of racism in school, which then makes it even more incumbent when we're home to really arm them before they go out into the which brings me to a point that you make later in the book. Um, 11 is apparently a very impressionable age, and there are folks out in the world, including the head of the Daily Stormer, which, if you don't know that website, well, it's not great. It is straight-up white supremacy. And he has said out loud that he believes 11-year-olds are a very good target demographic for the ideas that he espouses on this website. And it's a little younger than I expected. I would have expected to hear 13, 14, 15, but 11 feels so tender and small. And parents aren't necessarily, and caregivers aren't necessarily equipped to have these conversations. So how do we help them? How do we help ourselves have these conversations with people at a younger age than we were ever expecting to have them at? Well, I, I think first it's, it's, just that that point right there, just mm -hmm. the critical importance of, of, of having these conversations. I mean, mm -hmm. how is a, an 11 year old child going to be able to recognize white supremacist ideology coming from someone they're playing with on a multiplayer video game mm -hmm. or that's giving them a direct message on Instagram or on a meme or on a video on YouTube or, or TikTok if no one's ever talked to them about it? Like, so part of the the reason why it's so critical for us to actively talk to our kids about race, actively ensure that they're reading books and materials that we're taking them to places is because it gives them the ability to recognize white supremacist ideology, to recognize racist and sexist and homophobic and anti-Semitic ideology so that, A, they can protect themselves from internalizing it when other people say it. And even, you know, more ominously, if they're, if a white supremacist tries to recruit them, they will know what that person is saying is wrong. So in other words, creating a world for anti-racist children and adults to flourish just means we're better preparing everyone for life in the world. Exactly. And, you know, if we think about it, when we have very young children, after mm -hmm. they start walking, one of the things we, 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 we do as parents and, and certainly, you know, daycare providers and teachers 
is we teach them to look both ways before they cross the street. Mm -hmm. Even though in our minds, you know, they're still very young, right? The likelihood that they're going to be walking down the street by themselves is, is very slim, but we start the process of allowing them to understand that there are dangers mm-hmm. in this society. And we're like, it's going to be uncomfortable to tell them, yes, you have to look both ways because otherwise, you know, a car can hit you and it could hurt you really bad. Yes, it's uncomfortable to teach them that, mm-hmm. but it's going to protect them just in case any day we're walking down the street with them and they release their hand and they're about to w- cross the street and then they stop because of that lesson. It's the same thing as it relates to race. This is a dangerously racist society. There are all sorts of messages uh, that vulnerable children uh, are hearing about people being better or worse because of their skin color. Mm-hmm. And if we're not teaching them something different, then they're going to get hit and harmed by those ideas. I mean, part of that is increasing media literacy. It's not even reading comprehension at this point. I mean, back in the day, it was much more sort of, can you even figure out what this paragraph means? And now it's, do you understand what that meme is telling you? And it's happening at, on a scale that I don't think we were prepared for. What has your daughter taught you? She's six now. She is her own person. She has many, many opinions. She has classmates. She has a life outside of home with mom and dad. What has she taught you about being anti-racist? I think she's just taught me the critical importance importance of joy, (laughs) Um, of ultimately we are trying to create a world where people can be can be joyful, when people can enjoy life, where where the sort of harms of racism is not causing so much misery for so many people and and, and indeed our children and adults um, you know can can experience joy so she's just so joyful and 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 joyful to be around and and so it's hard for me to not be focused on joy you know when I'm when I'm with her and when I'm around her I mean you're very clear that this is not a prescriptive book this is not a how-to this is not a you're in the wrong I'm in the right this is we need to figure out as a society how to move our society forward. No one is benefiting from the current system in the grand scheme. No children or, or no child is benefiting from the current system. So you are doing a version of this book, though, for young readers with Nick Stone, which I think is the best idea. It's, it's a similar idea, a remix that you did with Jason Reynolds. So when do we see that? January of 2023. Okay, that means you've almost passed it to your public. Well, maybe you passed it to your publisher. Do they have pages yet? Where are we in the process? We're very close. Oh, that's so excellent. So we get to start the new year with you and Nick. But beyond that, what else have you been working on? You're heading up this program that you founded at Boston University, which is a very big deal. But what kind of work are you doing? I think in terms of publishing, Mm -hmm. I, I also have Magnolia Flower, which is a picture book that I, uh, that's based on an adaptation of Zora Neale Hurston's short story of the same title. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually doing a, a series of children's books based on, on Zora's uh, work. So I'm really excited because that picture book, which is illustrated by Lovis Wise, uh, it's just beautiful. And, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you know, an incredible story. And so, and being able to work with the literature of one of our sort of American literary giants has just been quite, 
Mm -hmm. but it's scary and humbling at the same time. I think it's really exciting though that, you, that you've been working on picture books. I think to see yourself on the shelf of a library or bookstore is really important. I mean, I came up in an age where, you know, there weren't a lot of Asian American kids in picture books. And if they were, they were in China or Japan. They weren't in Boston. So I think it's pretty terrific. But aren't you working on something else too? Didn't I hear that you were working on sort of a companion to the original stamped? So yes, I mean, we're, I'm working on a, a potential new edition. Mm -hmm. We'll see if I can finish that. <laughs> because okay. stamped is a, it's, it's a giant. So trying to, to, to get through it is, you know, it's, it's very significant. Okay, we'll be patient. But in the meantime, I want to go back to how to raise an anti-racist for a second. Is there a moment that surprised you when you were writing this book? Is there something that you just hadn't been prepared for and suddenly there it was and it made all the sense in the world? I think one of the, one of the studies that really surprised me was a study that, that found that our kids can understand complex topics before they have the language to express their understanding. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that was just shocking for me is because I think most people, when they're interacting with kids, they're trying to think, okay, is the kid at a developmental level that we can have this conversation? And mm -hmm. they're assessing that based on what the kid is saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, according to studies, they don't have that language, not because they don't understand it, but because we haven't talked to them about it, which would then give them the language. So I think for me, especially as it relates to having conversations about race and racism, we should not assume that a child cannot understand it if they haven't used the language of understanding. And I think that's going to be very, that was very impactful for me and my interaction with my daughter, and I know it will be impactful for other people. Well, reading that in the book made me very hopeful about our ability to adapt. I think it's really a matter of getting the information out and having people practice. I think one of the points that you've made throughout your work that's hugely important is the fact that practicing anti-racism is just that. It's an action. It's not simply a state of being that you wake up in one day, that you continue to build this muscle and work at it and have these conversations with the people around you. And I'm really hoping that they will take away that hopefulness that I have after reading this book. Hopefully so too. And, and indeed, I mean, being racist, being anti-racist is, is a journey. It's not a destination. And, and I certainly hope through how to raise anti-racist, we have human beings who can start the journey much earlier than we did. I think we can imagine as adults how hard it was when right. we were 30 or 40 or 50 to start this journey, to start having these conversations, to start having a self-examination. But just like it was hard for us to learn a new language when we were 40 or 50, yeah. but, but young kids, it's much, much easier you know, mm -hmm. for them. So I also don't want us to assume because it's hard for us. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard for kids because it's going to actually be easier for kids than it, than it, than it is and, and was for us. I think that is one point. I know we've talked about how the book isn't prescriptive at all, but that is one point that you make that I think is important to raise before I let you go back to all of the millions of things you need to do, is that sometimes we, keep back, we hold back from these conversations because we're more uncomfortable than kids are. 
that kids can handle a lot more than we give them credit for. And if we can just let them stretch a little bit, they might just bring us along too. Exactly. My, as I write about my, my partner, the real Dr. Ken, mm-hmm. <laughs> pediatric ER physician. And one of the things she always tells me is part of the reason why she specifically chose to work in a kid's emergency department as opposed to an adult. One is because kids respond better <laughs> in crisis. Uh, and, you know, kids are more resilient and they're easier to work with in these very difficult sort of moments. And, and I think that's very instructive for us that even though it's difficult for us, you know, in these difficult moments, actually kids likely operate in an even better way than, you know, than, than adults do. And reading is a really great way to build empathy. So if you're reading to your small people, you're already starting them off on the right foot. Ibram Kendi, thank you so much for making the time for joining us on Poured Over. We really appreciate you. How to Raise an Anti-Racist is out now. And also, people should not forget the other books as well. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in to get your copy of How to Raise an Anti-Racist. I'm Becky, coming uh, from my store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I am joined, as always, with my book buddy, Mark. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Mark. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and get started today. Um, For uh, for my book, I thought of um, a book that actually has been around for a while, and it's had a couple revisions. I wouldn't be surprised if another one comes along soon, but um, it is called Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman. This is actually the book that Mean Girls is based off of. So if you've seen that movie, you have an idea of what this is about. Um, basically, it's kind of a, a how-to guide for parents to recognize just the hardships that, um, that can occur when you are a teenage girl. Um, and, and actually, not even teenage. I think it, it kind of starts even late elementary school and then into middle school and continues. But really, it does a great job of identifying um, cliques and, um, and how important they are in a girl's life, how much they can determine both, you know, not just how uh, girls dress or speak and maybe some of their attitudes, but also just really how they feel about themselves. And so, um, and then it just talks about like the power plays of um, cafeteria seating assignments or um, inviting people to birthday parties and the strategery that is um, happening there as far as you know, the games that, that girls can play. Um, and it also then talks about the different roles, you know, whether, um, you know, your daughter is, um, is one of those queen bees and kind of running things, or is she someone who's maybe just kind of along for the ride? Maybe she's someone who's getting picked on. Maybe she's someone who's just watching it all occur and really doesn't know what to do. Um, it also helps parents identify who they are um, as far as if they are trying to be those BFF parents and like the hip with it, um, or if they kind of have their own biases from when they grew up and how that's coloring their decisions. So anyway, um, this is just a fantastic book. Like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if another revision comes along. But in the meantime, Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman is a great choice. Mark, mm. what do you have for us? Oh, good pick, Becky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a fantastic choice. 
Um, I chose uh, a parenting book as well. I chose a book called Raising a Reader by Pamela Paul and Maria Russo. These two are editors for uh, the New York Times Book Review, and they've put together this really fantastic how-to guide uh, for parents for raising a reader in your household. Um, They do everything from showing how to build a family library, developing reading habits in every member of the family, and breaking through to that reluctant reader. Um, This book is broken up into segments that uh, chart the uh, life course of a child. So you have uh, your baby chapters on the titles that will kind of help develop their love of reading all the way into young adulthood. Uh, so it's it's just a fantastic choice. Um, I think us working in a bookstore, we've got a lot of bias that everybody should be a reader at all times, <laughs> always. Uh, but sometimes you need a hand. And especially for those uh, children who just, they're really not sinking into a book. This is a great guide to help usher them into the world of reading and just uh, champion that joy so very much. I love it. I high, highly recommend it. And that is Raising a Reader by Pamela Paul and Maria Russo. Really good pick. Yes. Uh, That is all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to Poured Over and watching Poured Over. Um, Please make sure to give us some support with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can follow us at Barnes & Noble. I am Mark. You can follow my wonderful home store in Cincinnati at BN Westchester. And I'm joined by, of course, my book buddy, Becky. Thank you all so much. Happy reading and enjoy the day. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.